Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. Anxiety about 2024, whether it's economic collapse, a lot of talk about war, war in Ukraine, will there be war over the island of Taiwan, um, environmental collapse, population collapse, a lot of collapse, collapse, collapse talk. So there's anxiety around. Now, amidst a lot of this, there's the question about violence. Violence and the threat of it is a, is a tremendously useful political tool. I just read a piece read a piece on the free press. Hamas kidnapped my father and refuses to be their puppet. Talked about how Hamas has basically bullied imams and others in Gaza to try to take their party line. And of course, with Israel, there's all this drama but what do I know about it? I mean, it's all of this tension about violence and control and how this controls what we know and what we think and how this manipulates on and on and on and on. So there's the question of change, but I also want to talk about what I call the status quo kingdom because there are systems of group control, domination, uh, normally uses threats or violence of imprisonment to intimidate or perpetuate their regimes, but there's always sort of something built into the status quo. And this has been pointed to by many people for a very long time that, well, who says that the current regime of the status quo is necessarily the way things should be? There's a common sub subtext beneath our history of people comparing their expectations of good, bad, right, and wrong to the status quo and making the assertion that change is needed. But of course, the way things are right now, the status quo resists change coming, even if you think it's a good change. And that is often what's used to justify violence. That tends to be the, the um, justification for violent revolution. And nearly any headline today, take nearly any headline today, and you can fit it into this narrative. Hamas attacks are justified because of Jewish oppression. Uh, Jew, the Jews deserve a homeland because of German oppression. And on and on it goes. Any oppression can be used as a justification for a violent revolt to unseat or attack against a certain group, and on and on we go. We have charges and justification and defense. That sorts, that's becomes basically the, the pattern of political discourse, and this has been going on for thousands of years. We assume that the revolution is the fastest way to overturn an unjust situation, to over, overturn an unjust status quo kingdom. Well, most Christians are fairly familiar with the Bible. Of course, there's a lot of history that isn't in the Bible. And what comes and destroys the temple in 70 AD that you all might hear me talk about was sort of the first Jewish revolt. There would be a second and a third Jewish revolt. And the third Jewish revolt was known as the, the, Par Kukba, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. It was a Jewish uprising against the Roman Empire in, in, in 132 to 135 AD. It was led by a man named Simon Bar Kokhba who was claimed to be a Messiah or the Messiah and wanted to restore Jewish independence and Jewish religious practice in Judea. Uh, the Romans, after two revolts, weren't really having it, and so they were trying to integrate the Jews into the broader Hellenistic world. And one of the ways that they wanted to do that was prohibit circumcision, which was obviously a very big point of contention during that period. Another way was to build a temple of Jupiter on the Temple Mount which, as you can imagine, 
got quite a violent reaction. The rebels initially had some success, but they were eventually crushed by the Roman army, led by Julius Severus. Uh, the rebellion resulted in heavy casualties, destructions, and the continued banning of Jews from Jerusalem. Now, last week we began the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark begins with this sentence, which many of us might look at and say, it seems like the most obvious sentence, but actually the elements of the sentence are quite important. The beginning of the good news, this announcement of, of good news that is coming to the world, not good advice, good news about Jesus the Messiah, and you can see right away there's tension with that word, well... Was Bar Kokhba a Messiah? Is Jesus a Messiah? If Jesus is a Messiah, he's a very strange Messiah because everyone expects a Messiah to sort of look like Simon Bar Kokhba, the Son of God. Now, when you hear that, right away you know, well, there's going to be some tensions around this man. What do we mean by Messiah? What do we mean by Son of God? What was he tearing down and what was he building up? They, meaning Jesus, had just called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who were fishing in the previous verses that we read last week, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And so there would be a reading of a text, and Jesus would talk about the text. You can find one such sermon, for example, in Luke 4, where Jesus picks this text out of Isaiah that we read last week. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law were the religious leaders who were there to take the Mosaic Code and try to apply it to people's lives. And according to Peter, who was there, Jesus preaching and teaching had an impact on people, and he describes that impact as authority. There was a sense that Jesus was applying, relating, talking about this in a way that grabbed them, that seemed to apply to their world and flesh out their world in a way that the other teachers that had been teaching at that synagogue didn't seem to be able to have. Authority has a sense that what Jesus was saying seemed fit, to have power, to gain traction in a world they were living within. It was an intuitive sense that in contrast to what they usually heard, his words had meaning, power, and seemed to have more agency and efficacy to accomplish what they intuitively sensed was right and good. Just then a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, one of the things that you'll note is that when people who don't seem to be possessed by an impure spirit talk to Jesus, they're usually quite a bit more reserved. They say teacher or rabbi or something of this nature, um, or maybe a prophet or a miracle worker. But this man who is possessed by this impure spirit calls him the Holy One of God. That's a very strange thing. Now, impure spirit sort of connects us again to back to this Mosaic Code, where you had this entire system of clean and unclean, of holy and common, things that would defile, and then processes where things could be restored to common, or perhaps some things could, it would even be designated as clean. 
in purification. So this is a spirit that, well, it's an impure spirit. So this is a spirit that is causing problems, causing disintegration, causing what should be a person who can function and thrive in the context now is unable to do that. Now, when we think about demon possession, that sets off a whole bunch of things in our own mental imaginaries. Now, some people are skeptic about non-human agents who can occupy and overcome human beings. Others are not skeptical at all about this, but there's some sort of fuzzy dual world going on here where there's sort of normal and then there's demonic, and demonic seems sort of spooky and out there while, well, and so we, we kind of sort of hold that at bay, and if we don't have to think about it, well, we don't have to think about it. But here it sort of assaults us in this pass package, passage. Please be quiet, or be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now, some people might be skeptical and might have ways of thinking about maybe mental disorders or physical disorders, but I don't think they would have pointed to this as an exorcism, which it clearly is in the text, if the man had sort of just stayed this way and was subdued during the particular episode in the synagogue. Now, let's assume for a minute the evil non-human agent hypothesis. Why would a demon, why would a demon out? Jesus like this? Well, and why would Jesus shut the demon up? Now, naming is framing, and once he sort of names Jesus as the Holy One of God, oh, what are we going to do with this, especially in the Jewish context? Um, now, you might say, well, demons are liars, and therefore maybe the demon is saying a lie, but if you say that, then of course you're going to have to concede the reality of demons. Um, the demon it appears, I think, probably wanted to resist Jesus and thought that maybe naming and framing Jesus would be to his benefit for sort of holding Jesus off, and it clearly doesn't work. Jesus tells him to be quiet and then tells him to come out, and that's it. Now, why didn't Jesus want the fame? And this is going to be something that as we go through this passage, it's going to become strange because most of us, would imagine, well, if you're going to try to resist the status quo kingdom, fame is a really powerful thing. People will know about you. People will trust you. People will regard you with authority, and then you can command them. And with this people power, you will be able to, what? Unseat the current political regime, um, maybe resist the Romans, maybe do something along the lines that all of the other messiahs had done. And that doesn't seem to be Jesus' game. Well, so then we have to ask, well, what exactly is Jesus' mission? He's clearly trying to unseat a certain status quo kingdom, but exactly what is that kingdom? How can we name and frame that kingdom? Now, how would both the, G the demons' naming is framing strategy and the word-of-mouth promotion undermine Jesus' mission? The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. So right away you understand what authority is. Authority is what someone has when they can address reality and there's validation all around in terms of what people are seeing. 
He even gives orders to impure spirit and they obey him. Now, this is going to set up an accusation against Jesus that, well, he must be the head of the demons. But Jesus said, then why would I cast them out? Why wouldn't I just weaponize him and have him do my bidding against you? Because that, again, seems to be the way that normal messianic ship works. I whether it's with impure spirits or maybe it's with good ideas or ideas or clever ideas or, or inspiring people that I will somehow colonize other people and have them march out ahead of me to do my bidding. It's not quite what Jesus is doing. News about him spread quickly throughout the whole region of Galilee as you would imagine it would. Now popularity is coming But this way of using popularity seems to make Jesus uncomfortable. And yet he doesn't seem to be able to stop it, which is also interesting. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, Jesus is still with his four disciples, and this is Simon's mother-in-law, and she's ill. And now remember the unclean spirit. Now some of this clean and unclean stuff, and if you read the Mosaic Code, there's contamination. Whenever something that is unclean comes into contact with something that is clean, the clean becomes defiled and has to be purified or sent away or destroyed or something in order for it to be clean again, to be to be brought into a proper community and a properly functioning community of God. And so part of what part of this means is that if you were holy, if you wanted to remain clean, or at least not defiled, you'd very, be very circumspect and you'd, you'd, you'd sort of do things or not do things or in, in order not to risk defilement. But Jesus seems unafraid of these dynamics. And what we're going to see is that this clean and unclean very quickly gets connected with well or ill. And, and so what I... I'm not going to connect all of these things necessarily for you because I don't know that I can, but I want to at least line them up for you and put them in a universe together and have you think about how, in fact, they are connected. Clean is often preserved by separation, separation from non-Jews because, um, because the touch or eating an unclean thing and separation from practices of those who don't abide by the law. But here Jesus touches her. This is very clear in the, the, the layout of the Gospel of Matthew, but we're in Mark now. And she is restored. And what we're going to see is that whereas before unclean objects would become unclean if touched, there's sort of a there's sort of an altar dynamic. You might remember a few year, few weeks ago I talked about altars and, and how basically if an animal goes into the altar, it is consumed because God is a refining fire. Now this Jesus seems to have a quality of an altar and where when he touches what is unclean, he makes it whole again. So he, the text is very clear, he takes her by the hand and lifts her up. Now what we're going to see from other miracles of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't need to touch her in order to heal her. There's no magic happening here. Jesus can heal with just a word, but he intentionally touches her, and then she willingly serves him. So there's something deeply symbolic about this. 
That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So again, Jesus has a plan here, and Jesus is preempting them because, no, we're not going to play that game. I am doing something different. I'm not the Lord of the demons mobilizing demons in order to take over the land. And I'm not trying to run a military campaign in order to what everyone imagines would make things better, which would be to kick out the Romans. But the word is out. Something is happening. And it's not a war or revolution. And notice how sick and demon-possessed are put next to each other. Now, now, what's interesting is that they come to the door and you almost sort of conjures up an image of Lot and Sodom when the whole town comes to the door in order to, in order to rape the angels that have come, but they're not going to get close to them. Jesus, they come now to Jesus, and Jesus is going to go out into the evening. This is after darkness. Now, last week we talked about wilderness and sea and, and as sort of chaos areas. Well, day is order and night is chaotic. And so now Jesus is going to go out into the night and he's going to banish illness and cast out demons. Jesus is invading the status quo kingdom. And people don't quite know what to do. Because they're all looking at one particular kingdom and Jesus is saying, I'm doing something else. I'm not using the tools that you all expect me to use. I am casting out a status quo kingdom, and I am seeding another. Remember what he goes around preaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the status quo kingdom that is there is not pointing at the Romans. It's not necessarily disconnected from the Romans. Jesus is making moves here. Jesus, with his power is attacking a status quo kingdom, but not in the way we imagine status quo kingdom should be attacked. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, notice how he's paying attention to that, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place. So now we have the wilderness theme again, and we have the darkness theme. And it's actually in this sort of chaotic space that he prays. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! This is, this is the program, isn't it, Jesus? This is, this is how we build a following. This is how we conduct this kingdom. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else. What do you, what do you, well, we, why don't we keep working this town until we get 5,000 good men? No, 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 that's not what we're doing. Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there. That is why I came. And it's the, the, what, what, what do you mean, that is why you came? Weren't you always here? Aren't you from here? Everybody knows you're from Nazareth. Everybody are been, has been around this lake. It's a small, interconnected community. They, they know about you. but So they traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. Now, now Jesus sneaks away without his entourage. Why? And they go looking for him. Why? And why does everyone want to find Jesus? Well, 
nothing like this has happened and we, we, we don't want to miss it. And why is Jesus resisting this? What would falling into their expectations of him encourage from them? That is why I've come, to which they might have replied, come from where? Haven't you always been here? So they do in other towns in the region what they did in Galilee, or in Capernaum, I should change that. And the disciples follow along. Well, why does Jesus want disciples? Well, who will they become? And what are they learning? They don't seem to learn too quickly. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Now, we've just told that he did a lot of healing, and just every now and then there's an episode that sort of stands out in their episodic memory. It's something salient that they think something really important happened in this one case. Now, leprosy was this disease that made someone unclean and separated them from their family and made them ritually impure perpetually. And again, you can see the resonate, and you can see how this happens. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. And this has bothered scholars. What, is Jesus annoyed with the man? Is Jesus annoyed with the status quo kingdom? We don't really know. It could be that Peter reads his face and just recorded it. He was indignant. Peter doesn't know either, but just records it. Remember, these are eyewitness accounts. And so we're left to sort of wonder. And he reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. So Jesus is casting out unclean spirits. He is, he is taking care of illnesses that are making people unclean, sort of separating them from, from, from their town and community, from the place that people should be living. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now again, Notice, he didn't have to touch the man. He could just say, be clean, but he touched the man. Why? Now, obviously, there's sort of a psychological, you know, and you, you find pastors do this all the time. Pastors put their hands on people to communicate love and concern and closeness and connectedness. But remember, touching a leper should make Jesus unclean. But Jesus touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. Jesus is like a sacrificial fire, but different, more powerful. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anybody. But go show yourself to the priest and offer a sacrifice that Moses commanded for you for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So again, he's he's not sort of pushing the sacrificial system away, saying, go and make the sacrifice as a testimony to the priests. Well, will the priests listen? What kind of testimony is this? But the man, we don't know if he even does this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Now, we do know that the man disobeyed Jesus. And, well, Jesus didn't come back and castigate the man. There's interesting stories in the Gospel of John of, of Jesus finding the man born blind and appearing to him again and saying, how's it going now that, you're, now that you can see? How's it going with the religious authorities? Not so well, is it? He wants to be considered clean again in terms of the community. And that's, in fact, what Jesus has affected for him. 
And we, we get a sense of his heart, you know, not enough gratitude to produce obedience, but few of us can hardly fault the man. He's probably so over the moon that he just runs back to his family. I can live here again. I can live in the town. I can conduct business. I can be a father. I can be a son. I can be a husband. I have a life again. It's hard to blame him. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside, here we are again, in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And so we have this sense of John the Baptist, people going out into the wilderness to find John the Baptist, because well, they're kind of, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the reason you go and you watch news where news is, you know, it's doom, it's terrible, it's coming. It's just kind of keep an eye on the doom. But now, I got to get next to the fire. I got to see this Jesus. If, if I don't need healing, I want to see him do it again and do it again and do it again. But, but there's a sense in here that all of this watching the miracles isn't actually going to be enough. Just with John the Baptist being afraid of the doom, it's not enough. With the miracles, it's not enough. The people themselves, their practices, however natural and understandable, are hampering Jesus' work to push away this status quo kingdom. Status quos usually are status quos because there are reasons people sort of like the status quos. Jesus himself is now a dweller in the realm of chaos. He's master there too, remember. But he will still come, but people still come to him everywhere, and, and he won't deny them. He will still bring them healing. They are sheep looking for a shepherd in the wilderness. Remember David? Remember John the Baptist? Remember Israel in the desert? All of it is lining up here. Now the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke will sort of expand this, but Mark goes through this stuff very quickly and kind of gives us an image of what it's like in the Galilee. Just goes town to town and everywhere he goes, soon he can't go into town because, well, Hierarchies bind and blind and everybody wants to have him there for a party and have him do this. And what he really wants to do is restore the people. And he's not doing what everyone expects him to do, which is develop a campaign in order to address all of this stuff. He's doing something very different. He is unseating a status quo kingdom, but it's not exactly a status quo kingdom that you can see the way you can see Roman soldiers. Now, what do demons that yell, you're the Holy One of God, have in common with fevers, contagious skin disease, etc.? They rupture the community. They rupture the people's lives. They rupture the image-bearing that they were made for. What wholeness does the status quo kingdom not afford? In the age of decay, a lot isn't afforded. Well, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Now there's the question that you should ponder. And it's a question that doesn't really go away. Because the question remains with us today. Why did Jesus come? Because why Jesus came is something his followers should be about. Now why would Jesus retreat from the fame and the popularity that we see as a foundation for the kind of power that we imagine will get things done? And what did Jesus say that seems to have so much authority? 
Now we have to square this with the rest of what we know about Jesus, because of course for many of us, we're not reading this for the first time. How he allowed himself to be crucified. How he rises from the dead. How his disciples changed the world. And how we here and now worship him. What is his kingdom about? And how does he address the many status quo kingdoms that have come and gone since he's been here? Well, what does he leave us? Well, we certainly have his testimony, and we have the testimony of those who followed him, and we have his disciples, and we have the church as it's been going through the centuries. And he also gives us this meal. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the blood and body of our Lord was shed for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. For the undoing of what the status quo kingdoms have been doing in you. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.